Open your Bible to the book of Revelation. Now, we're uh, starting a, just, a, just a short series of studies uh, about Jesus and, and the end times. And, and um, uh, th- this is uh, uh, what I want to do. I want to spend just a few weeks just looking at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, and, and just a couple little things off the bat. First of all, let me just mention to you something that has to do with the pronunciation of the title of the book. This is my pet peeve, probably passed on from other people before me, uh, but I just want you to know it's not revelations, plural. It is revelation or the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not plural. It is singular, the revelation and epiphany. A, a pulling away of the curtain so that Jesus is revealed in, through, and above human history. Now, with that said, I, I want you to understand, if you came, uh, and maybe I maybe tricked you with the title or something, th- this is not going to be a series about end-time prophecy. That's not what we're talking about here tonight. Maybe we'll do that another time, but that's not the, the goal. I, I just need you to hear that right up front so you won't be... Uh, disappointed as we get into this. I'm not going to ex- be explaining to you, <coughs> excuse me, I'm not going to explain to you all of the revealed truth about who Gog is and Magog and, you know, I'm not going to be talking about what the symbolic meaning of the third toe of the left foot of the, of the beast is, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to be talking about any of that. Um, there, 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 there are people who know those things, there are people who know more about the book of Revelation than God does, <laughs> and I, I'm not one of those. Um, uh, at all, but but I just I just need you to hear hear this how we're approaching this because we're not doing a verse by verse study at this point in time on Revelation. But when I do approach the Book of Revelation, I, I approach it with a, a sense of of uh, just a splendid awe. Uh, the, the 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 Book of Revelation is how many remember back in the Iraqi War when they when the Joint Chiefs of Staff were talking about shock and awe. You remember that? Listen, the book of Revelation is shock and awe. That's what it's about. And and I think we actually make a terrible mistake when we turn it into like a cold-eyed theological treatise on end-time prophecy, because that's really not what it is. Um, Now, I want to say right on the heels of that, that I'm I'm not saying that there are no prophetic implications in the book of Revelation. I'm not saying that there's no apocalyptic revelations there. I'm just saying that that's not going to be the point of this series. Uh, th- that's not what, we're th- th- what this is going to be about. This is going to be about the, the ways in which we see wonderful and unique things about Jesus, revelations about Jesus, in the revelation of Jesus. Uh, ultimately, that's really what the goal is. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, what I want us to do, we want to look at the book of Revelation and say, what does it show us about who Jesus is? And that's what we're going to be talking about. So if you have your Bibles open now, we'll begin reading in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Verse one. And we'll just read through the first 20 verses this evening. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants things which must soon take place. He sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bears record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, uh, excuse me, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who was, excuse me, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the isle that is called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. 
And I heard behind me a great voice like a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the second time we've heard that. Uh, in case you don't know, you probably do. But Alpha and Omega are simply the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. So it's like A and Z to us, the beginning and the end. I said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks was one like a son of man, clothed with a garment down to the, his, to the feet and with a golden sash wrapped around the chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined by a furnace, excuse me, in a furnace. And his <clears throat> voice as the sound of many waters. Now, that might translate as the sound of a huge waterfalls. might be a better way to understand that. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His appearance was like the sun shining brightly. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. Then he, said, then he laid his right hand on me, and saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives, though I was dead. Look, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars. Now remember, in Scripture when you read, in the New Testament, when you read that phrase, when you see that phrase, the mystery, it means that he's about to give you the explanation of a sort of a mystery element. So he's saying here, I'm about to give you the explanation. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. Now, I won't read that. There's a lot there. And like I said, we're not doing a verse by verse study on there. And there's so much there that even if we did, I mean, it would be, it would be very daunting to, uh, to attack that. But I just want to begin with this. Too often, we approach the book of Revelation like a, like a textbook. Uh, we are a nation of engineers. We, we are westward in our thinking. We think like the Greco-Roman world. We are, we are what, what we call linear thinkers. We think from A to Z. We think from point one to conclusion. We think in straight lines. And as a result of that, of the way that we think in the Western world, we see history as stepping stones laid out across the front lawn of humanity with each one leading to the next in a specific and delineated linear order. So that step one leads to step two, step two leads to step three, and so on and so forth. And then in our mind, to get them out of order totally destroys our historical worldview. The, the, here's the thing about that. It, we have to understand that a huge portion of the world does not think like that. A huge portion of the world, particularly in, in uh, Asian nations and Middle Eastern, which is really part of the same culture in a lot of ways, a huge portion of the world does not think of history as a straight line, but thinks of history as a revolving wheel that that the, 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 the cycles of life, so to speak, unfold in a reviving, re, revolving wheel. The cycles of truth reve, reveal, unfold in that way. So that in their minds, so that the dry season comes before the monsoon, monsoon before planting, planting before harvest, harvest before dry season. So gradually, as the wheel rolls around and around and around, you cannot tell which came first and which came last in this whole process. That's how they see the world. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but we have to understand that because we have to understand that the book of Revelation was not written by a Western theologian. The, the book of Revelation is not a progressive uh, theological treatment of end-time prophecy where step one leads to step two and step two to step three. See, what we do with the book of Revelation in particular, but really with a lot of biblical prophecy, 
what we do is we take the book of Revelation and stretch it out on a Procrustean bed of our prearranged theological and historical worldview. Now, you say, Procrustean, what are you talking about? Well, do you remember from your reading, anybody remember from Greek mythology? Maybe you haven't, haven't heard of this particular character, but in Greek mythology, there was a character named Procrustes. Anybody remember Procrustes? Okay, one, one person. Okay, you're the educated one, Dustin. Um, anyway, Procrustes was a robber who killed his victims in a most cruel and unusual way because he had this iron bed and he made all the people he would kidnap that he was robbing, he would make them lie down on this iron bed and he forced them to fit his bed. So if they were too long for the bed, he would lop off parts of their body, cut, chop off their feet or whatever, but he'd make them fit the bed. If they were too short, he would stretch them until they, until they, fit, uh, they fit the bed. They, but everybody had to fit his bed. So when you talk about, when you use that phrase, when you talk about something being procrustean, that means that, it, that uh, something procrustean takes no account of individual differences but, but cruelly and mercilessly makes everything the same. It makes your, whatever we read, if you're, if, you, if you're talking about Procrustean bed, you're saying we read the book of Revelation and then we make it fit what we already believe. That'd be the idea behind it. So uh, a Procrustean bed is a scheme or a pattern into which someone or something is arbitrarily forced. Well, we come up with our Procrustean bed of our theological approach to the book, book of Revelation. And then as we do that, we have in our mind how things are supposed to play out. And then we lay the book of Revelation on there. And, and, and the parts that are too long, we lop off. And the parts that are too short, we stretch out and we try to make it fit on our, our bed. But, uh, and we do it that way because this is how we view everything in life. We, we want to see Revelation as chapter by chapter, step by step, leading from chapter 1 to chapter uh, you know, 22, and nothing can be out of order in that whole process. However, remember that the book of Revelation was not written by a Greek theologian, but it was experienced by a Jewish man. And a Jewish man has more of an Asian thought process. So you, you have to understand that the book of Revelation happened to John. It happened to him. It was not dictated to him. It, it, you know, I mean, I see the book of Revelation as almost operatic. You know, this great story. It's, it's, it's not just your regular opera. There, this is sights and sounds and explosions and screaming and yelling and rivers and rivers of blood and beasts that rise up out of the sea and then sink back into the sea. This is voices in heaven and, and voices in the earth and voices beneath the earth. I mean, this is, this is huge. So, so just imagine in your mind, think of it this way. John says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day on the Isle of, island of Patmos. And John says, he starts off by saying, I'm your brother in tribulation. In other words, he says, this happened to me because I'm living in the tribulation of the world. And that's tribulation with a small t, not the great tribulation. He says, I'm going through the same stuff that you're going through. Indeed, he was going through worse things than anything we've been through. Uh, he was banished, exiled, tortured, sent to live on a terrible island. The island of Patmos was a terrible place of exile. It was really basically just a gravel mine for the Roman Empire. And there he is on the Lord's day and when suddenly he is transported into the spiritual dimension. Imagine, not, 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 don't, don't think of it this way. Imagine not, not that a book, chapter by chapter, page by page, is laid out on the ground before him. But imagine more like this, that it's like this great spiritual canister descends around him. And picture in your mind, there are these panels there that are independently on independently standing axes. And these panels each have a picture on both the front and the back and as they descend around him the the whole canister begins to spin around him however it does uh, not only does the 
entire canister begin to spin, but each panel individually begins to spin. And so you're getting this constant whirling picture around you so that you're getting, a, 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 you know, the, a, a, you look in this direction and you see this picture and then you turn there and you see it and, and it's there, but it's not exactly the same. And then you look back here and it's kind of the same, but it's different. And then you look over here and then you look over there. And, and after a while, the picture is just whirling around you. And then when it lifts, you're left with residual concepts and images that are not necessarily in any exact or precise order. They are the atmosphere of Revelation. And it's huge. It's sights and sounds and explosions and angels and the church and beasts and demons and warfare. And it's just spinning around you and exploding with huge sound. I mean, it's like special effects that would make George Lucas jealous. It just, it just explodes around John. And then all of a sudden it's over and it lifts. And, and now God says, write down what you've seen in a book. You, you can see the challenge. John, I can just almost hear John say, oh yeah, sure, they'll, they'll get this. <laughs> so John tries to compile these glorious, explosive images into this book, not expecting us to stretch it out on the Procrustean bed of our prearranged theological ideas. I mean, listen, sometime just take the book of Revelation and let it happen to you. Don't study it. Don't dissect it. Don't put it under the microscope. Just read it. Let it flow. Let it explode in your brain. You know, let it wash over you. And when it's over with, just see what revelation you're, with, you're, you're left with. Well, the book of, of Revelation begins with a clear revelation of Jesus. Now, we'll say this. It is clear, but however, we cannot say that it is precise. I hear people say things like this all the time, you know, when they talk about particularly the book of Revelation and say, I want a literal translation of the book of Revelation. Well, no, you don't. You may think you do, but you don't. A, a literal translation may actually be a translation that causes you to lose the meaning of it. You, you, what you want is a correct translation. Um, you, you don't want a literal translation. Let me give you an example to help you understand this, uh, just using modern languages. For example, if, if I say to you, tengo hambre, anybody here speak any Spanish? Okay, tengo hambre. What that, if, you, if you spoke Spanish, you would translate that sentence. In English, you would say, I am hungry. I'm not because I just ate a great meal, but this is an illustration here. And, and, a, and that translation, to translate tengo hambre with I am hungry, that's a correct translation. The only thing, though, is it's wrong, but it's right. It's, it's not really what I said, but the, the translation, what it does, it makes not only a ling linguistic, but also a cultural translation. You see a literal translation of that phrase. I heard somebody saying it back there. Uh, in, in English, it wouldn't make, it wouldn't make any sense because it doesn't say, I am hungry. In fact, you can't say, I'm, I am hungry in Spanish. It's not possible because the concept doesn't exist in Spanish. In English, hunger is a state of being. I am hungry. It's the state in which I'm, I am. However, in Spanish, hunger is not a state of being. It's a possession. So, tengo hambre says, I have hunger. See, there's a big difference. Uh, when I say tengo hambre, I'm not literally saying I am hungry. It'll be translated that way for you because that's the way you need to hear it to be able to understand what is really being said. However, it's not really a literal translation. In fact, the truth is, when I say tengo hambre, you're, you're, you're not, uh, 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 when you say that, you're not even really saying I have hunger because it literally means have hunger. But uh, in Spanish, if the verb is the right tense, you don't need a subject. But that doesn't work in English. You know, you can't just say, have hunger. <laughs> you know, they're gonna, you go down to the Shake Shack after service and walk up to the counter and say, have hunger. 
You know what they're going to they're use to say, well, good for you, Tarzan. Do you have money? That's what they're going to say. In translating the book of Revelation, you, you translate from language to language and also from culture to culture. But I also want you to see there's another problem in this translation process because with the book of Revelation, not only are you translating from, from language to language and culture to culture, but you're also transposing from medium to medium. It's like you're moving from screen to page because it's what he experienced and what he saw and now he's trying to write it out. You're, it's like you're going backwards in the movie process. I mean, anybody here, have you ever read a great book and then they made a movie out of it. And then after they made the movie, you went to see the movie and you were like, eh, you know, because you were disappointed and you were like, well, they just missed the whole point. Well, part of the reason for that is because it's so difficult to go from one medium to another. They don't translate well. For example, trying to take a book to a movie. Well, a book, a book can tell you everything that a character is thinking, not just what they're saying. Not just what they look like, but it tells you what's going on in their mind. It tells you what's go happening in the background. Uh, but, but in a movie, you only know what they say and what they communi communicate through their acting. So it makes it very difficult to translate a book to a movie. So, so uh, uh, it's difficult to go from medium to medium. So language to language, culture to culture, and medium to medium. So he, he's moving from event to page. And he's moving from language to language and from culture to culture. And, and, and that's why when people say, I don't want a symbolic approach to the book of Revelation, I, I would say, well, yeah, you do. Because think about this. Look, look at what it says in, in verse 13. Look at the revelation of Jesus that we have here, starting in verse 13. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks was one like a son of man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and with a golden sash wrapped around the, ch his ch the chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His appearance was like the sun shining brightly. Now, now think, think, what... What if you had never heard of Jesus before? Or, or give me a better way. What if you, you were a missionary and you witnessed to, say, some Iranian Muslim who's never even really heard the truth about Jesus, and you say to this person, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you die, you'll go to heaven. And the man looks at you and says, well, when I, when I get to heaven and I see Jesus, what is he going to look like? Is what we just read what you're going to tell him? I mean, are you going to look at him and say, well, he's got long white hair and he wears a golden robe. He's got coals in his eye sockets and his feet glow in the dark. <laughs> is that what you're going to say? That's not what you mean, right? I mean, you see that there's something here beyond just a literal translation. There's something else going on here. I mean, he's not going to have a sword in his mouth. He's going to have a sword in his mouth. You see, and this is very, very important that we understand. This is telling us things. This description of Jesus is showing us some things about Jesus. So why is Jesus revealed to us with white hair? Well, it's not because he's old. You know, if Jesus is old, if that's the only reason, then maybe, maybe he's gone senile. And now we're all in deep soup, right? It's not because he's old. It's because he's wise. Even now in the, in the United Kingdom, magistrates wear uh, these, these white wigs. Uh, have you ever wondered why they wear those white wigs? You ever seen them on TV and you're ever like, well, they just look so silly. Why do they wear those? But it's because it's to say that the person on the bench that's adjudicating this matter has wisdom. So, so Jesus is revealed with white hair. He is wise. He's He's revealed to us, first of all, as being wise. That means that Jesus cannot be fooled by humanity or history. And Jesus has a wisdom that transcends natural reasoning. Secondly, we see him with this golden sash, or some versions say a golden robe that, that speaks of royalty. He's royal, he's regal, he's majestic, he's holy. So his hair is 
white as wool. He is heavenly uh, uh, royalty. And then it says his eyes are like a flame of fire. I, I mean, you see what that means? It means that he burns through all of the carnal obfuscation that we put up to camouflage our true selves from everybody else because we camouflage our true selves from other people. Nobody really sees anybody else. You see what that person will let you see. Isn't that true? You see what you can, but the truth is each of us is camouflaged. But Jesus says, I can see through all that. He says, I see you. I see what you're like. I know everything about you. I cannot be fooled. He's not only wise, but he's penetrating. His eyes burn away all the clouds that stand between us and him. It says his feet are like fine brass as if they'd been refined in a furnace. And you may have never thought about it before, but that is so comforting to me. It is, that is wonderful news to hear because the truth is all my heroes eventually turn out to have clay feet. You ever heard that saying? We, we've said that for years. Maybe you've heard it for years. Uh, oh, he has clay feet. You know, the, the, all that means is that person may be good and wise, smart and talented, capable and great in many, many ways. But at some point or another, some element of his own weakness and carnality will show up. So we say, oh, he's got clay feet. It just means that person is not perfect in every way. However, this says Jesus is perfect. He has no clay feet. There is no weakness in him. There's no place in his entire makeup where you're suddenly going to say, oh, I'm so disappointed in him. You need to know that about every leader in America, every president, every preacher, every teacher, every pastor, every evangelist, every politician, every business leader, I don't care who they are, at some point or another, they all have clay feet. However, Jesus' feet are shiny as brass. They glow like bronze straight from the furnace. There's no weakness in him. He's revealed to us as entirely holy. Now, I'm going to come back to the first part of verse 16 in a minute, but I want to go to the last part of 16 where it says that he has a sharp two-edged sword in his mouth. The sword is his word, and it has two edges. It's not blunt on one side and sharp on the other. It has two sharp edges so that when he speaks, it just slices me open, and I'm feel, filled with the woundedness of my own realities. I mean, have you ever sat underneath preaching or open up the Bible and read or maybe in a time of prayer and suddenly you were just grieved with who you were and what you were doing or how you were thinking or how you were living. That's the word slash. It's a wound so deep. But then the sword cuts the other way and heals. He taught my heart to fear, the songwriter says, and then relieved all my fears. The two-edged sword brings truth and justice, but it also brings mercy and grace. That's, that's what's in his mouth. He, he's never going to lie to us. He's not going to jerk you around. He's, he is the one voice that is absolutely dependable. Th then look at this. And I, I love this. This is so powerful for me. It says that he's walking among seven candlesticks, holding in his right hand seven stars. Now, it's very interesting to me that with all of the imagery here that this is the one thing that he specifically says he wants to reveal to us did you catch that look at verse 20 in verse 20 he says let me reveal to you the mystery of the seven stars and the seven candlesticks it said the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches with all the imagery, this is the one thing that was so important that Jesus, in speaking to John in this revelation, says, let me tell you what this means. That, that means that's, that's a significant pointer. That's, a, that's something I need to take notice of if he points this out this way. So, so listen to me. This, this is really a wonderfully hopeful passage of Scripture to us. What he does, and earlier he listed, there were seven churches that he listed in, uh, in the province of Asia. And I'm not going to go through and, and mention all of those, but, 
But he, he lists seven specific churches. And I want you to know these were real churches. So, you know, the people out there that, that like to uh, look at the seven churches and the letters to the seven churches that come up in chapter 2 and 3, they like to point those and say, oh, they're about the different church ages and these different things. No, 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 I don't believe that at all. Forget all of the vague definitions of the seven churches. He's talking about real churches. He's talking about specific groups of people that meet together to worship Jesus and hear the word of God in specific towns in the province of Asia. This is the church on the street corner. This is the church in town. He lists seven of them, but again, they, they stand for churches, not just the church at large, but specific churches. And Jesus is revealed at the beginning of the book of Revelation as standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, candlesticks. And we know that the seven candlesticks stand for the churches. So Jesus is revealed at the beginning of the book of Revelation as standing in the midst of his churches. He knows and he speaks to each one of the seven churches. The image here is, is like a, a, of a gardener strolling through his garden. And he knows and he speaks to each of the seven churches. In, in the chapters that lie ahead, in chapter 2 and 3, he speaks to those churches. And he speaks with authority. He speaks with clear meaning. He speaks with rebuke. He speaks with encouragement. He, he gives each one what they need. And he strolls among them and stops at one and says, and says, look, you, you look healthy. Anybody that, that, would, that walks in here and sees you would say you're a beautiful, healthy tree. But he says, I look underneath the surface and I know that you've got root blight and you're dying. And he says, I, and I have the right to say this to you because I am he that is living and was dead. And then he goes to another one and says, I, I know what you're going through. I know that you, you look chopped up and beaten down and discouraged and defeated, but I'm with you. And if you'll just be faithful, if you'll just wait, if you'll just hold on, if you'll just hear my voice. And to each one of the churches, he says, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. And to him who listens and obeys and overcomes, he says, I will grant him a promise of some kind. And each church is given a a great promise. So he says, I'm, I am in the midst of the church. I want you to see the implication, the meaning of that. It means that Jesus is not standing over on the sideline watching all of the stuff that's going on in our church saying, well, just give it your best shot. I'll see you in the rapture. He's in the midst of his church. He's in the midst of our church. That means this is very serious business. We don't have the right to tamper with or, and malign and maul the bride of, of Jesus. You know, I, I know of churches right now uh, the, the, personally, I know of churches right now that are, that are going through hell and high water there are churches where there are fights and arguments. There are pastors in churches over the years who have just gotten their brains kicked in in some church. And some churches have had pastors that misbehaved or did some horrible thing or they were tyrannical. And, 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 and as a result, there were some people who were lay leaders in that church who just sort of limped out and they crawled out of there to either stop going to church altogether or to find some place of safety and sanctuary. Some of you may have been through wounded experiences like that in your lifetime. And the temptation when you're walking through some of those things is to look at that and say, all right, if that's what church is all about, then I don't want anything to do with it. However, the revelation of Jesus places him squarely in the middle of the church. You know, I hear people say, oh, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. I love Jesus, but I don't want anything to do with the church. You know, I've always said that's a little bit like looking at me and saying, Pastor Dave, I love you, but I sure can't stand Julie. You know, that's not going to sit very well with me. I, I, for those who say I love Jesus, but I, I hate the church. I just want to say something to you. Jesus has not left the church. 
And he has not given you permission to do so either. Jesus loves real churches. Not just vague churches, not just the cosmic bride, but the church at Sardis, the, the church at Pergamon, the church at Philadelphia, the church at Ephesus, and dare I say, the church at Marion, Arkansas. I'm saying to you that Jesus is in the midst of his church. He's in the midst of the church, dealing with, talking to, searching, speaking to, rebuking, loving, encouraging. He hasn't gone anywhere. Jesus is revealed first and best, even in the midst of a wounded church. Then he says the seven stars, he's standing among the seven candlesticks, but then he says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, here again, we have a problem with translation because the word that's translated angel in English is, is a word that simply, it's translated in, uh, angel in English. It's, it's simply in Greek means messenger. It'd be the same word that I would use if, as if I had written a note and said, said to Mark and said, Mark, please uh, take this note to the sound man. And, and, and you in that moment have become my angel, my messenger. However, you know, we've used that word angel so exclusively in English to mean heavenly creatures. Uh, and, and so it makes it hard for us to get this and see this. Now, just because I handed you a note and, and, and to, to take to the sound man, now to tell you that you're my angel, doesn't mean that you sprouted halo and wings, right? Uh, it, it just means you become my messenger. That mean, the reason Gabriel is called an angel is because he says, I'm a messenger from heaven. I've brought a message. So the question is, who are the messengers to the seven churches? He says, I'm revealed in the midst of my church and I'm revealed with my messengers in my right hand. Those stars, those messengers, are, are they heavenly beings? Are they angels in the sense that we think of angels in English? Well, listen, first of all, let me tell you that I, I'm not going to tell you that God doesn't station angels at churches. I pray that he does. I believe that he does. I, I pray that God puts an angel in our parking lot and I pray that he is armed and dangerous. You know, I'm believing for that. However, I don't think that's what this passage means. I, I, I don't think that passage is about heavenly beings. If the passage is about Jesus being revealed in the midst of real churches, then the seven stars in his right hand are the real messengers to those churches, carrying real messages to real churches in which Jesus stands. The seven stars are, are those who are commissioned by God to carry a particular message to that church at a moment in time. Therefore, I believe that the seven stars are the pastors of these seven churches. Those voices sent under prophetic anointing to declare God's word to that church in that period of time. Now, I want to talk a little bit about a, a few things, and, and it sounds, it, it, this is the kind of thing that, that often, as a pastor, you, you hesitate to talk about because it can sound self-serving, but I don't mean it this way, that way at all. But I'm going to say these things because there, uh, are, there's a generation of young people, not just young people, there's, a, there's just people out, out there who need to hear it. And, and you know what? There are churches, uh, people in other churches who may see the live stream that may need to hear this as well. But I'll just say this. If you're one of those who makes your pastor's life miserable, I want to say, first of all, right off the bat, there's nobody in our church that makes my life miserable. I cannot believe how wonderful this church is to me. I want to say that right off the bat. So I'll make it clear. I'm not talking about you. I'm not talking about anything that's going on here or anything like that. But I'm talking in general terms what we can learn from what this is saying and what it, the implications are for us. But if, if you're watching this on the live stream, if you're one of those people that makes your pastor's life miserable, if you're one of those people that, that attacks and criticizes your pastor every opportunity you get, let me just say this. You go ahead and kick your preacher. You kick his brains in, but listen to me on this. Remember that he or she is standing in the right hand of Jesus. 
and you have to kick up from where you are. Go on and kick him, but between your foot and your pastor is the nail-scarred hand of Christ, and it is dangerous business to kick the stars in the right hand of Jesus. Now you know why I said it can sound self-serving, but I want you to understand, this has, I'm not talking, I mean, people here are so good to me. But I also want to say something to preachers who may hear this and, and also to those who are younger who may be called uh, to become preachers because this is a word of encouragement and sobriety for us as preachers as well. You, you are not summoned to be hired hands. You are summoned to be stars in the right hand of Jesus. You are summoned to stand in the most wonderful platform in the world, the nail-scarred palm of Christ. You are summoned to proclaim that which you have heard. You are summoned to say what you were told to say. You, you are not called to be arrogant or presumptuous or tyrannical or to be manipulative. You are summoned and half of your job is to hear and the other half of your job is to say. Now, there is a bunch of stuff that needs to be done in the ministry, and you need to do that or learn how to do it or learn how to, how to delegate to get other people involved in that. I mean, there are people who need to be counseled. There are the, uh, counseled. I kind of said it more like canceled. <laughs> you know, that's not what we're trying to do. There are people who need to be counseled. There are hospital visits that have to be made. There are meetings that have to be uh, attended. There are budgets that have to be drawn up. But I want you to understand if you're a preacher, if you're a man of God or a woman God called to this, to this ministry, that your job is to hear what Jesus has to say to the church and say it all the while remembering where it is that you stand. Now there's going to come, if you're a young minister, there's going to come someday when some, it'll seem old to you, but some 55-year-old businessman who's been mad at God for 20 years, he's mad at you, he's mad at everything, and he'll lean across the table at a board meeting and he'll say, you're fired. He'll say, you're stupid, you're horrible, you're worthless, we hate you, and you'll you load your little family into a car and drive out of town and there's something in you that's saying to yourself, oh, I've made a mistake. I'm just not called. I shouldn't be here. I've messed this church up. And you'll turn to your little wife and you'll say, baby, I'm so sorry. I lost my job. I messed everything up. But you listen to me right now. That man across that board table is as nothing. You are who you are. You are a star in the right hand of Jesus. You are a star. Not You're not a hired hand he didn't that man did not call you he may run you out of town on a rail but he can't fire you because he didn't hire you you may never pastor that church again you may never never draw another dime from that church again but you listen to me he didn't have the right to dismiss you because he's not the one who summoned you to be in the right hand of Jesus you know I thank God for our church I thank God that we have such love and unity in our church and I, I want you to know I don't take that for granted um, I've, I've been in situations where it wasn't like that. I've seen other churches where the situations, I mean, I know of one in particular, I'm not going to say where, but I know of one that is just a horrible, horrible situation right now. But I've seen it happen in churches where some young pastor was voted into a church with 99% of the vote, and then that 1% thought that they were on a jihad, they were on a holy war. They'll be armed, dangerous, and demonized, and they'll, they'll do anything and everything they know to do to bring that poor young pastor down. At some point or another, some church member, some board member, some lay person in the church has to have the strength and the courage and the biblical insight to stand up and say, I've seen a revelation of Jesus clear in his word. He's standing in the midst of this church and that young pastor is a star in his right hand. The courage to say something like that in a situation like that only comes when it's based on a biblical revelation of who Jesus is. He is wise. He is holy. He is pure. He is insightful. His word is a double-edged sword. His feet are not made of clay. His presence is in the church. 
His love is for his bride. And when you get that revelation out of the book of Revelation, you won't worry so much about the beasts and the seals and the trumpets and all the meaning of all the symbols and that sort of thing because that revelation of who Jesus is will carry you through anything. What does it mean to tyrants? Well, it means to tyrants that they have no more right to touch the church than angry, cantankerous board members do. You know, there are Christians in Iran. A lot of people have forgotten that. There are Christians in Iran. There are Christians in, in, in China. There are Christians in North Korea, Russia, Sudan. You can go on all this list of these places where it's, we, we think of it being a godless government, and it really is, or, or it's a government led by a false religion. And I just want to say this to you. Jesus is in the midst of that church. Jesus is in the midst of that church. And those tyrants, whatever country, need to understand that if they reach out and manhandle the bride of Christ, Jesus isn't going to stand for it forever. There's going to be a reckoning. There's going to be a reckoning. Look, what, what does it mean that Jesus is in the midst of the church. Let me bring it to a conclusion, and this will bring it to a much more personal place for most of us. Dr. Mark Rutland, someone who I've admired and been sort of mentored from a distance in a way, if you, if you could think of it that way, but he tells a story from his childhood. And you wouldn't know it looking at Dr. Rutland now, but, uh, but he grew up really rough. Um, his, his older brother was always a rough character, in fact, and, and he said, talks about this publicly, so I'm not saying anything out of, out of sorts or out of turn, but his older brother is a serious criminal serving a long sentence in maximum security prison. And Dr. Rutland makes the point in telling the story that his brother uh, is a rough, dangerous man, but he also says that, that he was always a really rough, dangerous fellow. He grew up with his brother being a really a violent, dangerous guy. Well, Dr. Rutland's family moved to a new town when he was in the seventh grade, when Dr. Rutland was in the seventh grade. And it, it was a rough little town. He, he, was, he was just a skinny little seventh grader. And, and on his first day of school, this great big guy in the 10th grade came up to him and said, are you the new boy? And Dr. Rutland said, yes. And he looked at him, he said, well, tomorrow I'm going to beat you up. I beat up all the new kids. He said, I don't like you, and I'm going to beat you up real bad. He said, I'm going to try to put you in the hospital. Then he said, I I'm not going to do it today because I want you to go home and, th and think about it all night long. And he said, if you don't come to school tomorrow, I'll do it the next day. And if you stay out of school that, that day, then I'll do it the day after that. But whatever, whenever the next day comes that you're at school, I'm going to beat you up. Or Dr. Rutland went to his brother, Dusty, who was always, you know, as I said, he was always a rough character. And he went to his brother, who was a senior in high school, and, uh, and told him all about it. And he, and he said, Dusty, let me tell you about this guy. And he told him about what had happened and what, what the guy had said. And he looked at his brother, Dr. Rutland looked at his brother and said, Dusty, I need you to take him out. He said, he said, do what it takes, kill him or something. He's going he's to hurt me. And Dusty looked at him and said, no, I, I'm, I'm not going to start fighting your battles. You, you have to handle it yourself. And Dr. Rutland said, Dusty, he, he's in the 10th grade. He's five years older than me and he's huge. There's no way. And Dusty said, well, you're on your own. He said, but I'll tell you what to do. He said, get to school early and get up on the steps. He said, if you get up on the third step, you'll be about the same level as he is. And when he comes up to the steps, then he said really loud in front of everybody, you say to him, we're going to settle this right now. I'm not going to live under terror. If you'll tell me uh, that, that you'll never touch me again, then I'll let you go. But, but, if, but if you even hesitate, unless you promise in front of all these people that you'll never touch me, that you'll never lay a hand on me in public or in private, then I'm fixing to clean your clock. Dusty looked at, his, at Mark Rutland and he said, if he hesitates, 
in that moment, if he hesitates even for a second, you punch straight forward into the bridge of his nose and drive his nose back into his face. He said, don't hesitate, just punch straight forward right into his nose. And Dr. Rutland looked at his brother and said, he's going to kill me. And Dusty said, well, that's the best I can do for you. Well, Dr. Rutland went to school the next day, skinny little seventh grade kid, standing on the third step of the school. His legs were just shaking, trembling. And he saw that big old guy ride up on his Harley and get off of his Harley, and he started walking toward Dr. Rutland. Dr. Rutland was just, just trembling everywhere, just shaking in his boots. People were standing around, and finally that big kid was standing right in front of him. And Dr. Rutland said, all right, I want to settle this now. If we're going to fight, we're going to fight this minute. And he said, promise me in front of all these people that you'll never touch me as long as we live, or I'm fixing to take you out now. And to Dr. Rutland's shock, he started backing up. And he said, hey, hey, hey there, little buddy. I, I was just teasing you. Did, you. did you think I was going to beat you up? He said, that, that, was, that was a joke. I, I was just joking. He said, don't, don't you have a sense of humor? And he backed away and went around the end of the building. And Dr. Rutland was like, well, feeling all full of himself. And he turned around and his brother Dusty was standing right behind him. You understand? Jesus is in the midst of the church. You're not standing alone. Your elder brother is standing right behind you. He's revealed in the midst of his church. He is triumphant. He is glorious. He is holy. He is mighty. He is to be trusted. He is perfect. He sees you for what you are and he still loves you. He holds you in the palm of his right hand. He's in the midst of his church and he's not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere. Stand to your feet with me, would you? Let's just give God praise in this place. Oh God, thank you for your presence in our lives. Oh God, for a revelation of Jesus, for, for a revelation of who he is. Open our eyes that we might see. God, let us see Jesus holy. Let us see Jesus revealed. Let us see Jesus mighty. Let us see Jesus glorious. Let us see Jesus, the, the rose of Sharon, the, the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star, the fairest of 10,000, the, the lover of my soul, my kinsman redeemer. Oh, we praise you, God. We praise you and we thank you that we know who Jesus is. We see who he is. And it goes beyond just the feelings and the emotions that it stirs up within us. But we know you are with us and we are in the palm of your hand. And we give you thanks and we give you praise. And we thank you, Jesus, for, your, for the reality that you are in this church. You're in the midst of Restoration Life Church. You have not gone anywhere. You're still working you're still planning. You're going to accomplish your will in this church. And we give you thanks in the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.